Every day, we have something thrown in our face regarding sexuality. Our culture is overly sexualized. I mean, it's, it's like whether you're watching TV or you're seeing a billboard or no matter where it is, uh, sex, it's right there. You're going to sell something, use sex. Uh, if you're going to attract people to something, use sex. And so we've been begun this series, Human Sexuality, a gift from God. We started last week, and our desire is to talk about human sexuality from a biblical principle. So we want to talk about what does the Bible say about human sexuality, and uh, what are maybe some misinterpretations that come along, and how do we handle people who may have different views regarding our human sexuality. And last week we began by laying down some foundational pieces. One of those foundational pieces was, uh, hey, what is your biblical worldview? Meaning, hey, there's four questions that you need to respond to before you even start the question about human sexuality. And those four questions is, are, what, what do you believe about God? Who is God to you? And there's a gamut of things that people believe. What do you believe about the Bible? Um, what do you believe is the role of the church in advancing the kingdom of God? And do you believe that spiritual warfare is real? And we talked about last week that, you know, where I stand on those four things that and I'm not going to go into great detail about that. You can go and watch the video from last week if you want to see specifically. But the other thing we talked about is then what is, in general, our position on human sexuality. And we have this statement on the screen that says, Faithfulness in heterosexual marriage, celibacy in singleness, these constitute the Christian standard. So this is our denomination's stance around human sexuality. It's our church's stance, and it's my stance. And one of the reasons why we laid that out right in front is we, we don't want to have anybody have any questions about where we stand as we have some good, hard discussions and teaching around uh, this kind of stuff. So we recognize that the, the Christian standard is that in marriage, it's a relationship between one man and one woman, and that they are faithful through life. We also understand that if a person is single, and being single is great, that celibacy is at the heart of singleness. We also talked last week a little bit about the religious background of the LGBTQ and a couple of things that I pointed out is just one, 83% of those people who call themselves the LGBTQ grew up in the church. Most of them have left, but the interesting thing for all of us was to discover that only 3% of those who left, left because of theological reasons. Why did they leave? Because of relationships or the lack thereof. So, most LGBT community um, leave the church because of relationship, not because of theology. So, 
two important questions for us. What is our theology? It is important for us to know what the Bible says. It's important for us to have a biblical theology, so we are going to have that conversation. But the other question is relationship. How do we be in relationship with people in the LGBT community? That's both within the church and outside of the church. Often when people debate, especially Christians, uh, around the ethics of same-sex relationships, often it starts with some of the what we call prohibitation passages, uh, prohibition passages, which, which are like Leviticus 18 or Romans 1, where our focus is on, see, it prohibits it here. And that's where the discussion usually starts. And, you know, then the question follows up, well, does that apply to today? And then you get in the dialogue about, again, what do you believe regarding the Bible? What do you re- believe regarding God? And so then we are ending up standing there and debating over all of these important issues. And today, um, what I want us to do is before we hit those passages that prohibit same-sex relationships, let's start at what I think is a more more important foundational question. And that is this. What is marriage? You've you got to have an answer to this question. It, is your definition of marriage a union between two consensual adults who fall in love with each other and are committed to each other and it doesn't matter what they're gender is? Or Is it the marriage, the union between two sexually different people? Another foundational question. So where do we get the answer to that? Well, we're going to talk today about God's original design. You see, there's this little-known hermeneutical principle, hermeneutics being how you study the Bible, and it's called the principle of first mention. And this fits into this whole context idea. You've heard me talk about that. When you are reading the Bible and you're looking at a verse and trying to figure out what the biblical meaning for a verse is, you can't pull it out of context. You have to read it in context. So in the verse, what's the context of the passage? What's the context of the whole letter that it's in? What's the, the context of the whole Bible? Even what is the context of the culture? And within this context conversation is this little known principle, the principle of first mention, which is basically, where is it first mentioned in the Bible? What can you learn about it there? And then, do you see the same theme all the way all through Scripture? Or does it change as you move through Scripture? So, when we are going to talk about God's design regarding marriage, let's go to the very beginning, 
Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to start reading verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish in the sea, excuse me, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But we notice, the first thing we notice about God's original design is this. Man was made in God's image. We are image bearers. And somewhere along the line, you've probably heard a sermon or two about being an image bearer. An image bearer has everything to do with identity, and it's more than just our physical identity. It's our spiritual identity, because God is spirit. Yes, God can take the form of a human, but we, our image bearing is in that spiritual form. And so the first thing we need to recognize is that we... As humans, as mankind, are created in the image of God. The second thing we learn is this. We are made to rule. As image bearers, we were put on this earth to rule. We have a job. We have a purpose. This is why we were made. The third thing we notice is this. We were made male and female. Mankind exists as male and female. It's pretty simple. I I know in our culture it doesn't seem simple, but you look at our outer parts, there are differences between male and female regarding our outer parts. I don't have to have a screen up here or that, right? No, we're all good, good. Even if you look at our inner parts, again, I'm not going to put a screen up, but even our inner parts are different. Even down to a cellular level, if you've had biology, you know that there are 23 pairs of chromosomes, and one of those pairs they call the sex chromosome because if you have two X's, you're a Girl, yes. If you have an X and a Y, you are a boy. So God's original design. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in this conversation right now. I'm talking about God's original design here in Genesis. God's original design, male and female. So we are made in His image. We are made to rule. And we are made male and female. And when God got done with his creation, he called his creation what? Good. In fact, at the end of day six, he called it very good. Or tov, or miod tov. Now, tov is the Hebrew word for 
good, and as I mentioned here before, uh, our word good and the Hebrew word tov, even though they translate back and forth, they're not even close to the same meaning. When we think of something good, we think, oh, yeah, that's good. That was a good meal. Tov, um, in the Hebrew, this is from a friend of mine who's a rabbi, Rabbi Allen. He says this, Tov is the actualization or making real for the potential of life embedded in the creation by God when the creation brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it. Now, I know you may be going, what? What's he saying? It, it took me a little while to dive into this too, but just in, in, let me help you. So Tov, okay, you and I were created with the potential of life within us that can bring forth seeds which produce another life. Does that make sense? If you think of all of God's creation, plants, animals, they all have within them the ability to reproduce life which reproduces life. Simple. Tree. Tree has seeds. A seed falls to the ground. Another tree grows, and when that tree grows, that tree has seeds. Seeds fall. That, that's the idea here. We have embedded within us life which can then reproduce future life. So, for a Hebrew, especially a Hebrew rabbi, when they see the word good or tov throughout the Hebrew scriptures, they don't just hear, oh, that's good. They see something that is so amazing that within it, it has the ability to reproduce life, which then reproduces life. God's original design of mankind, male and female, is tov. Now there's another part of the creation story. It's part two and it's found in Genesis 2. This will help us to get a little grasp on marriage. We know that the man, the Hebrew there for the man is ha-hadam, he is put in the garden. He's created, put in the garden. The Lord gives him some instructions to work the garden, care for the garden. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. You can have any other tree, but not this one. And then the Lord says, It is not good for Hahadam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Notice that it is not good. In other words, Hahadam, the man, is not able to produce life, which produces life all by himself. It's not good. It's not tov. 
He needs a helper suitable for him or just like him so that they can be tove, can be good, can reproduce life which reproduces life. Again, God's original design was male and female. The story doesn't end there. It goes on. And the Lord God caused Hadam to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, or Ahadam. Now, it isn't a perfect translation from the Hebrew word to rib, but you get the idea it's side, and so it's what helps us as English readers to understand where it comes from. It comes from the side, and again, Anytime a story is told, even the Bible, words are intentional. And so here, it's intentional that the author wants us to know where this comes from, that it comes from the side, speaking to an equality, not a one above the other. Woman was made from man's side, and so we see as it was stated in Genesis 1, that male and female are to rule together. Verse 23 says this, Chahadam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. I want you to know something. You notice I'm throwing in a couple of Hebrew words there. You see, in Genesis 1, when it talks about mankind, the Hebrew word is Adam. It's where we get our word Adam from. So, Genesis 1. Anytime you see Adam, that's mankind. As you move into the story, when it talks specifically about the man, it's Ha-Adam. It means the man or a man. So it's now focused in. It's gone from mankind to Hadam, the man. It's an interesting thing that happens because woman is brought into the picture. The Hebrew word for woman is Isha. But here, in verse 23, Hadam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. For she was taken out of Ish. The writer now uses a different Hebrew word for man. He uses the word Ish. And Isha comes from Ish. Just like in our English, woman comes from man. Okay? So we need to see this play on words because this speaks to a picture that when the man was created, and then the woman was created, and the man, Hadam, sees Ish. He goes, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. In other words, she shall be called part of me, or out of me. She is me. Do you see the unity? Do you see the, the oneness? Do you see the coming together of 
a man and a woman. The words reflect what has happened in the physical realm. And then we have verse 24. It says this. This is why a ish leaves his father and mother and he's united to his isha and they become one flesh. The original design for marriage is ish and isha being one flesh. It's male, female, man, woman, one flesh. That is God's original design for marriage. Preston Sprinkle, in one of his books, he talks about there's two main themes that are highlighted here in this passage, and one is the sex difference, and the other is the equality or oneness of the relationship. So in the biblical worldview, or in God's original design of marriage, there are two components that are important. One is the sex difference, and the other is becoming one flesh. It's interesting because this verse, Genesis 2.24, has been used in marriage ceremonies down through the generations. You've heard it many times. But the interesting thing is that it's also used in other places throughout the Bible. And I'm just going to point out a couple. I'm going to jump right to the New Testament. So you see that there's this common thread. Remember the first use? Is it the same as you go through? Matthew 19 Jesus is actually talking about divorce here. They approached him about divorce, and Jesus responds this way. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, okay, see, Jesus goes to the beginning. The Creator made them, male and female, sex differences, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He has just quoted Genesis 2.24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus uses the phrase, for this reason, to connect to even Genesis 1, because in verse 4 he says, at the beginning God had created the male and female, and so these two things that we pointed out from this passage, sex differences and becoming one flesh or equality, are seen right here. The reason why we don't get a divorce is because, haven't you heard? Jesus is talking, remember, he's talking to Pharisees, he's talking to Jewish people, they know the Torah, they know Genesis. He's like, hey, do you remember the story in Genesis 1 and 2? They are no longer two. This is why divorce is wrong. Because when a man and a woman, different sex, get married, 
They are now one. And this is why divorce is so ugly. It's so harsh because you have one being separated again. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, he talks about, um, he's dealing with uh, prostitutes. There, um, and, um, oh, sorry, I didn't move on there, but 1 Corinthians 1, 6, Paul is dealing with prostitution within the church, and he says this, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, here he goes, he's quoting Genesis, the two will become one flesh. He doesn't quote the whole verse. He says, for it is... There's where Paul goes. Paul, back at the beginning, this is the key. Ephesians 5. Paul is talking about households. And he says this, in relationship between a husband and a wife, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, Paul, talking about the relationships between a husband and wife, goes back to the beginning. And then he goes on into the rest of Ephesians uh, 5, or he says right before this, verse 31, he says this, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives, just like Christ loves the church, their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for it, for we are members of this body, And then he says this, for this reason, so the reason why, husbands, you are to love your wives is for this reason, one flesh. You see, here's the deal. Um, The goal in marriage is not submit and lead, because that's nowhere in Scripture. The goal in marriage is submit and love, and your goal is to become one flesh. The reason why you submit wives and the reason why you love husbands is not so you just have an okay marriage, but that you become one flesh. And trust me, it's a lot harder to be one flesh with your spouse than it is to try and lead your spouse. Because if you're going to become one flesh with your spouse, you have to know them. You have to understand them. You have to sacrifice for them. You have to put them first. I hit this hard today because... Often when we think about human sexuality, we think about what the world is doing wrong. And we forget to look inside and see maybe there's some things that we need to do differently. Maybe we need to ask the question, are we, church, modeling what it means to have a biblical marriage? Are we going back to Genesis and going, hmm, for this reason, I left my mother and father so I could be united with Terry 
and become one flesh with her. Hmm. On a scale of one to ten, how am I doing? Uh, please don't answer right now. You and I can have that conversation later. <laughs> and if you remember in Acts 2.42, how the people were in awe and people were just wanting to gather together, it's because God was doing an amazing work. You see, if we figured out marriage inside the church walls, and it became a place that brought glory and honor to God, people would be knocking on our doors going, how do you do this? So in conclusion today, I want us to remember, first of all, that the LGBT community basically left the church because of broken relationships with people in the church, not theology. We talked more about that last week. It's important for us to engage in discussions with people about same-sex relationships and marriages. I'm not saying we don't have those conversations, but we, we need to have them. But our, we don't start with laying out our theology and trying to defend our position. It isn't going and saying, this is my position, and do everything we can get that across. Let me recommend starting with a question like this. Hey, what is marriage to you? And then listen. Again, Preston Sprinkle talks about the first three questions he asks people when he is talking to people who disagree with the traditional view of marriage and Christian sexual ethic. He does start with this question. So tell me, how do you define marriage? And then he listens. His second question is, where did you get that definition from? Then his third question is, how does Scripture inform your definition of marriage? See, now what you've done is you've gone from pushing your agenda, which is what it appears, and just push, 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 to you get them thinking, because now they have to think. Well, where, where do I get my definition of marriage? Is it scriptural? See, the vast majority of people don't have their own theology on marriage or don't have a biblical theology on marriage because they haven't really done the work of researching it out. The vast majority of people just recite what somebody else says because that's what they like. But as soon as you ask them this question, where do you get your definition from? Now all of a sudden they have to go in their brain. So, always choose to honor people in this conversation, even if they have a different view. Do your best in asking them questions to gain understanding from them. Because our goal is, again, to bring them to Jesus. 
Because once they come to Jesus and they grow in that relationship with Jesus, then the Holy Spirit will start doing its work. Greg Coles, he's an author, he talks about this. Uh, Greg Coles happens to be a Christian man who uh, has wrestled his whole life with same-sex attraction. He has chosen to live a life of celibacy because he believes that the biblical ethic for sexuality and marriage is between one man and one woman. He writes this, We human beings are rarely argued into submission about the things that matter most. When talking to someone about why they change their opinion or understanding of something important, rarely, if ever, it, it is because somebody beat them in an argument or they pestered the people into a different view. If your hope as you enter conversations about sexuality is that people will come to think more like you on the matter of sexual ethics, let me suggest that your arguments may matter less than you think. Being thoughtful and well-read is a valuable entry step to productive and mutually transformative conversation. But this entry step isn't itself sufficient to inspire meaningful transformation. Perpetual pestering, though it may feel holy in its motivation, isn't generally praised for its success in motivating changes of heart. On the other hand, respect, charity, faithful presence, unceasing prayer are relational choices that I've never regretted making. And they are choices that have occasionally been known to transform even the most unlikely of people. In other words, build relationships with people first. You see, it's really easy for me to speak my belief and tell somebody else they're wrong, and it makes me feel good because I'm, I'm declaring the truth. It's a lot harder to walk with somebody through transformation. Because important beliefs generally don't change overnight. They change over time. Thankfully, we have a God who is patient with us. So let us model that patience with those around us. Let's pray. Mm, Father, we are grateful to you for your patience. And Father, I pray that we as a church would model a biblical marriage for our community. Mm. I pray that our goal would be becoming one flesh. Ooh, there, are, there, are, there are some of you in this room who who are struggling in your marriage. Your marriage relationship is not even close to being one flesh. God wants to heal you. God wants to restore your relationship. 
God wants to speak life into your relationship. After the service, there are going to be some people up here off to my right who will pray with you. Please, please come. And if you're uncomfortable coming forward, please talk to myself or Pastor Chris or any of our other staff. Our conversation around human sexuality and that is a gift is meant to be more than just telling how we disagree with the world. It's meant to be how we are going to be transformed and walk walk in the Father's goodness. Remember, the Father is good. He is tov. He is myoto. He is very good. Amen.